And no one can condemn us. Amen. That's the power of the name of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the name embodied someone's character. It embodied who they were. And so when they hear the name of the Lord, they hear the name of Yahweh, they think that he is gracious, that he is loving, that he is slow to anger, that he is merciful to us. And that name is applied to us today as well. Amen. My name is Roger. I'm thrilled to be able to bring you the word of God this morning. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 12 today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 12. It'll be on the screen as well. And this is a song of praise. Verse 1 begins, on that day, you will say, I will give thanks to the Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and now you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust in him, and I will not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you all will say, give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make his works known among the peoples. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizens of Zion. For the Holy One of Israel is among you, and he is among you. In his greatness. Let's pray. Father. We believe. What you say in your word. That you can break our chains. We believe that the only way that it can be done is through the power of your name. And so Lord I pray that you would. You would soften our hearts this morning as we learn from your word. That you would sanctify us in your word. Because it is the truth in your precious and holy name. Amen. In two days, we have the new year. We got a lot of people making resolutions. A lot of changes being made. And I bet some of you might be thinking, I'm going to be snarky on New Year's resolutions right now. That's bad form. I'm not going to be snarky. I actually like New Year's resolutions, we've made a few ourselves. I'm all for it. I like the idea of making some habitual pattern changes, some things that I can try to do a little bit differently because that's what a habit is. Like you do something for a while and you break that habit and you do something over here. And then after like what, 28 days or something like that, you now have a new habit. Ta-da. So I like making those changes and I like attempting to make those changes. However, I am human and I know that they only go so far. I understand that there are plenty of changes that I would like to make that aren't going to last. There are foods that I will commit to not eating on January 1st that I will probably eat on March 15th. Things that I will say, things that I would want to do, not do, because if it's up to me, if I'm the one making the change, it's not going to be perfect. But I'm here to tell you today that when Christ makes a change in your life, it's permanent. And it's not just a change. It's a total transformation. 
And Isaiah 12 speaks to quite a few different transformations that the Lord has given us in Christ. And I'm excited to dig into them with you. The first transformation that we see in Isaiah 12 is that he takes us from condemned to comforted. The first verse says, on that day, you will say, you say, what day is that? Is it like a Tuesday? Is that going to happen sometime next year? That day is, is a shorthand phrase we first learned about in the book of Obadiah for the day of the Lord. And a long story short, what the day of the Lord is, is it's a period of time. It's an era that begins when Christ came into the world and will end and will fully culminate when he finally returns. And so while most of this text is looking forward to that day when Christ will return, when he will make all things right, we also see today in 2018, soon to be 2019, we see the effects of the day of the Lord, the effects of Jesus coming into the earth, taking place already. And so it says, on that day, you will say, I will give thanks to the Lord. Why? For although... You were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And the first question we might ask is, why is God so angry? Is it petty? Is it, I mean, is, is, is it justified? Well, for us, let me, let me give you the short answer. Yes, it's justified, and he's angry because of sin. He's angry because we've broken his law. But when Israel would have read this, when Israel would have heard Isaiah preach this, this would not have been a surprise to them to hear that God was angry, to hear that they had broken the law. It's been laid out pretty clearly for them in the first 11 chapters of Isaiah. Here's, here's just a snippet of it. Here's a, a, a little bit just to see clearly. We'll start in uh, chapter 9. We'll go through just a couple of verses here where we begin to see some of the sins that... It, Israel is being accused of. The first one we see is in verses 8 through 12. And it's the sin of arrogance and pride. Specifically, we can look at the end of verse 9 when it says, And they will speak with pride and arrogance. And because of this, at the end of verse 12, we have this terrifying vision. And it's in all of this, his, meaning the Lord's anger, has not turned away. And his hand is still raised to strike. That's a nightmare. If you've ever thought about the hand of the Lord being above you, ready to strike you for your sin, that is a nightmare. But for Israel, it was also a recurring nightmare. Look again. In verses 13 to 17, we see the second. And it's specifically regarding praising men. And not God. The people did not turn to him who struck them. They did not seek the Lord of the armies. So Israel, so the Lord cut off Israel's head and the tail, the palm branch and the reed in a single day. What does that specifically mean? It means the head is the elder, the honored one. The tail is the prophet and the one teaching lies. So they were trusting elders and prophets and leaders who were leading them astray, leading them into sin, trusting them over trusting God. And so the vision returns in verse 17. It says in all of this, at the end of verse 17, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike, but it gets worse. Verses 18 through 21, we see that they had absolutely no love for their brothers and the vision gets pretty gruesome. If we look in verse 19, at the very end, it says, no one has compassion on his brother. Well, tell me exactly how does no one have compassion on their brother? What are they doing? Verse 20, they carve meat on the right 
but they are still hungry. They have eaten on the left, and they are not satisfied. This is a vision of cannibalism. This is a vision of brother eating one another, which was actually common during a siege when they had no food and they had nowhere to go. But it's also spiritually. We see that they had no love for their brothers or those that were less advantaged than themselves. And so in the end of verse 21, it says, And all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still raised to strike. And last but certainly not least, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, we see the gross social injustice that took place in the land. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws. What do these laws do? They keep the poor from getting a fair trial. And they deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless, the widows and orphans, the very people who God had sought to protect all throughout the Old Testament were being rejected by the very people that claimed that they were of God. And so in verse 4, in all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. And after reading these verses, maybe we could say, and who could blame God? And the answer is no one. They stood there condemned, looking up at the God who raised his hand to strike them, and nobody could accuse God of being anything but just. Nobody could accuse God of being anything but holy to have his hand come down and strike them. And so the question is not, why is God angry? The question is this phrase, why has he turned his anger away? And we find the answer to that in Isaiah 53. It is not that he just turned away and gave up on his anger. It's that his anger was redirected. We stood there beneath the hand that was ready to strike, beneath the hand that was ready to condemn us. And just as it was coming down on us, his son leaped in front according to plan and said, take me instead. And the full wrath of God came down on his son. And by his stripes, By his wounds, we are healed. You see, our sin is so great and so offensive that just one drop could separate us eternally from God. But his blood is so much greater that just one drop could wash it all away. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. There's no other fount that I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We stood condemned, and yet he turned his anger away. And the very hand that was raised to strike us has come down to cradle us in his arms. It says, your anger has turned away, but not just turned away. You have comforted. The transformation of Jesus is that we can go from condemned to comforted. The second transformation that we see in Isaiah 12 is that we can go from fearful to joyful. It says in the next verse, I will trust him and I will not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. If I could summarize the entire book of Isaiah 
it would be with this one verse. I will trust him and I will not be afraid. You see, Isaiah was preaching at a time when superpowers were on the rise. And remember, Israel is like a little country, no bigger than the size of New Jersey. And it's like super strategically placed where there's water by it, where there's agriculture that can flow through it. So a lot of nations would want this land. And you have little Israel, again, no bigger than the size. I'm not down on New Jersey, by the way. I'm from there. I'm just saying it's, it's, that's a geographic thing is what I'm getting at. So they were, they were right to feel threatened. And you had giant nations like Assyria on the rise. You had the Babylonians on the rise. You had the Medes and the Persians on the rise. And so the whole story of the people in, in, in Isaiah's time was, well, well, we should go to some of these other countries and we should seek help. We should seek refuge from them. When the Lord said, no, I said, stay put. I am your salvation. I am your deliverance. Trust me. And they said, well, but some of these other countries, they've got like bigger shields and they've got bigger swords. And so they would go to these countries and say, listen, we'll follow your gods. We will obey your rules. Just, just help us out now. Do whatever it takes so that I can have a little peace, a little deliverance today, and, and we will do whatever you guys want. And the folly of that is laid out in Isaiah chapters 13 through 35. Obviously, I'm not going to read that, but take my word for it. The entire section of Isaiah 13 to 35 is all condemnation and all destruction against all of the nations that Israel would have turned to. And it's really repetitive, and it's also hilarious because it's like, oh, you wanted to go to Babylon. Here's what's going to happen to them. Think, try, nice try. Oh, you want to go to Assyria? You think they're good? Here's what's going to happen to them. Oh, you want to go over to Egypt? Oh, that's a great country. Here's what's going to happen to them. And the entire section talks about the fact that there is no place of deliverance outside of your God. There is no place of deliverance outside of your God. So trust him and do not be afraid. And you say, that sounds great, but it sounds impossible. How do I know that God could really deliver me? And some of you may be thinking to yourself, okay, Roger, but you don't know my story. How can God really deliver me? And Isaiah's answer to this is, I know he can deliver you because he's done it before. The next verse says, For the Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That may not mean anything to your ears offhand, but when Israel was reading these words, they knew exactly what it was. This is a direct quote from Exodus 15. When the Lord had led his people out of the bondage and the slavery of Egypt, right up to a whole bunch of water, that looked like it was going to kill them to the point where they said, we should probably go back because this is going to kill us. And at least we were slaves back there. And what did God do? The song says he spread the waters and they walked through the way that led to their salvation. How do we know that God can deliver us today? 
because he's already done it in the past. And friends, if you don't have a story like that, can I just encourage you that the story of Israel is your story? Can I just encourage you that we worship the same God that spread the water so that Israel can walk through on dry land? And that same God will spread his arms on the cross and his body becomes the way, the truth, and the life. And one day, one day the clouds will spread and he will descend on a white horse to save us. Save us. And he will save us. And I know he will because he's already done it before. And he continues to do it every day. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, all for grace to trust him more. He has taken us from afraid and has transformed us into joyful. Look at the next verse. And so you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. I love how this verse like gets bigger with every single word. So it starts off with joyfully. So it takes us from fearful and now we're joyful. Okay. So we're joy. We will draw water again, may not mean much to us because we got water all the time, but for Israel in a desert, dry and arid land, water's a big deal. Water is the source of life. Egypt had the, had the Nile River that would basically give them everything that they needed. So what did they do? They made gods out of the Nile, and so they just worshipped the Nile all the time. The point being that water was a source of life, and this was a big deal to, to have this. This was everything that they needed. This is everything they needed to be joyful from. But it wasn't just water. This water was from springs. Now, water that just sat in a well was kind of gross, and it was sort of unhealthy. That, that wasn't really the water that they were going for. The water that they really wanted was from springs or from rivers or from rainfall. That was called living water because it was moving. It was delicious. It was healthy. So it gets even better. Okay, we don't just get water, but we get it from springs. But here's the best part of it all. What's the source of this water? What's the source of these springs? It says you will draw water from the springs of salvation. Or another word for this is the springs of deliverance. What does that mean? That means that this well wasn't made by human hands. That means this well wasn't artificially manufactured. This means that this well can't break down. This means that the waters will run for you. The river will go for you for as long as God has planned on delivering you. And I just want you to know that there's an eternal plan for your deliverance. That river will not run dry. The clearest example I can see of this takes place in John 4. I love how the Lord works. Marcus had uh, the very verse that I was going to in in the call to worship today, just to show the unity of the body, the unity of Scripture today. But in John 4, we learn about a woman. She's a Samaritan. So she was already rejected by the uh, religious, pious Jews. We see that she comes to the well alone. This is very uncommon. Most women will go with other women. Most women will go with their friends. They'll go with their servants. They'll go with their mothers. But this woman comes alone. And not only that, we see that she shows up in the middle of the day. If you've ever been to Israel in the middle of the day, don't be in Israel in the middle of the day. It's uncomfortable. It's very hot. Yet there she was alone in the middle of the day. Why? Most women would go around six in the morning. Most women would go late at night when it's, when it's a lot cooler. 
Why was she avoiding people? Why did she not want to be seen? Well, we learn that she actually had a pretty bad reputation. And whether she brought this or she was a victim, which is much more likely, to be honest with you, she was there alone because she was shamed. She was there alone because she was rejected. She was there alone because nobody wanted to be with her. At the well, a well was a source of happiness. In the Old Testament, people like met at the well. It was like a match.com for ancient Near East, which works, by the way, just throwing that out, or a, a singles bar if you're a Presbyterian. Like this, the well was a place to hang out and meet people. Isaac's servant met Rebecca at the well. Moses met Zipporah at the well. You had Jacob and Rachel. They met at the well. So the narrators love to talk about the well as a place of happiness, joy, where people meet people. Even, even uh, a divine revelation had been given at the well. This was a place of happiness, but not, not for this woman. No, for this woman, the well was a place to remind her that nobody loved her. That all changed when she met Jesus there. Jesus gave her something that, that honestly, I, I say it blows our mind, not because I like the cliche of it, but because we can't comprehend it when we first take a look at it. Watch what Jesus gives her in verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, listen to this, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This water is eternal. This water secures your seat in glory. And sometimes I read it, though, and I go, "Eh, but is it really better? Is it really? I mean, I'm thirsty. And I like the idea of having water that's eternal, But is this really going to matter for me today? Oh, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we're going to be in glory with our cups that never run dry. And we're going to have our mansions in heaven. I'm thrilled and I'm thankful. But what does that do for me in 2018? What does that do for me today? Is it just a future promise? This woman would answer you, absolutely not. This water affects me not only in the future, but it affects me today. Watch what happens. We're going to jump all the way down to verse 28. Read the story of what immediately happened, what immediately changed in a woman who was rejected, a woman who was lonely, and a woman who wouldn't be seen with other people. It says, then the woman left her water jar. By the way, the whole stinking reason she came to the well, she left the water jar. So something else was going on here. She went into the town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And what did they do? This is how persuasive this woman was. They left the town and they made their way to follow Jesus. Jesus can transform a total enemy into an evangelist. Jesus took this woman and gave her not water, but gave her freedom. The freedom to go to any well that she wanted, at any time that she wanted, with anyone that she wanted. And I will drink that water any day. He can turn an absolute enemy, 
someone who was hiding from people, shamed and sorrowful, and tell them, if God does not condemn you, then no one can condemn you. And he can turn us into evangelists in the kingdom of God. And that's exactly where Isaiah 12 takes us in the next verse. It says in verse 4, And on that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. If that verse sounds familiar, it's almost verbatim what it was in verse 1. However, there's a slight difference. In verse 1, the you, on that day you will say, is singular. In verse 4, it's plural. It's y'all. On that day, you all will say, and here's why. Because once you understand the transformation that takes place in yourself, you cannot help but to not keep it to yourself, but share it. With everyone else, like I said, he takes us from an enemy into an evangelist. And you may not feel very significant in this life. You might not feel like you can handle your money very well. But let me tell you, you can teach people how to store treasures in heaven. You can teach people how to have an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, waiting for you in glory. You might not be a very good manager. You might not be a very good manager of people. You might go into work every day and try as hard as you possibly can and get yelled by your boss every day. But let me tell you that you can father and daughter children. You can disciple people who will be prophets and priests in the kingdom of God. Jesus can transform you in a way that this world can't, that you can't. Oh, the living water. Oh, my mouth is a dry and thirsty land. I'm a hot mess right now. Look at that. I didn't know that was open. Thank you, Cheyenne. I don't know if you see this. Is a, this is a new thing for J. Crew. You can just wipe this off, and it gets dry. Did nobody see that I just totally watered myself right now? I, okay. I'm like, everyone was, like, really quiet. I'm like, y'all feeling bad for me or something? All right. Thank you for getting the wires away before I break the church. All right, get back to it. And on that day, you all will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make works, make his works known among the peoples. There's a rapid succession of imperatives in this, and it all focuses into the very end. So I'm just going to scoot right on through. Make his works known among the peoples. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion. I'm so glad, by the way, that Pastor... Uh, oh my, this water is everywhere. Yes, Jesus. I'm so glad that Pastor uh, Derek has been talking about the singing passages in the Bible and bringing those out, because I know it would be awkward if I brought it up. You know, like, oh, like the Bible talks everywhere about singing. You'd be like, okay, of course the worship guy is going to say that. But I'm telling you, it's everywhere. This is the way that we make the earth known, the glory of God. It's by getting together and singing about his mighty deeds. So if you want to find a Bible that doesn't have singing in it, you're going to have to find a different Bible because this one is flooded with passages of singing. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion. And here's the climax of it all. And this is what I'm closing with. This is where we end. Here is what it all comes to. The Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. Friends, we can trace the story of redemption, the story of scripture, through the story of the presence of the Lord. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden when God walked with them in the cool of the day. 
But because of sin, that bond was broken. But he appeared to them in the tabernacle, in a tent, with rules and regulations. And then he came in a temple, in the Holy of Holies, and things started to get a little bit better. But nothing was as good as when Jesus himself, the man, tabernacled among us. But I'm here to tell you that it gets even better than that. Jesus himself said, I must go. It is necessary for me to go because I got something better for you. Because when I go, the Spirit will come. And so if you're curious how the presence of God lives among us today in his greatness, it's through his Spirit in each and every one of his children. 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that God's Spirit lives within you? What does that mean? If you, that means that if you want to feel the presence of God in this place, hug your neighbor. If you want to hear the word of the Lord being spoken to you, find your neighbor and talk about scripture together. If you want to see God work in this city, then find your neighbor and get out in the city and do something and see the Lord do great things and see him transform everything. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We cannot change ourselves. Not in the way that we would want. We would love to change little habits on the day-to-day, but we know that ultimately, if we want our very souls changed, our very spirits changed, that can only come from one source. And Lord, I want to thank you for showing us time and time again how you've saved and delivered your people, how you've saved them from Egypt, how you saved them from Assyria, how you saved them from Babylon. I look at those moments and I know that you will save us as well. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for changing everything in your precious and holy name.